the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Jesus says, And to the, church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the, word, write, uh, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. These are words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, given to us, his church, this morning. Now this morning, as we continue in our study, the seven letters written to the seven churches found in the first three chapters of Revelation, we come to the church of Smyrna. This is the shortest of all the seven letters. Now that fact alone makes this letter somewhat unique. But there is something else which makes this letter to the church in Smyrna unique, something which really separates this church from many of the other churches that we're going to hear about over the next several weeks. Remember last week I said every one of these letters follows the same structure. There is a greeting and a self-designation from Jesus Christ. This uh, self-designation is usually particularly relevant to the situation and condition in the church to whom the letter is being sent. That then is followed by a commendation, a praise from the Lord of what he sees this church doing well. The commendation is followed then by a condemnation, a statement of what Jesus sees which angers him in the church. And following that common condemnation, you will find an exhortation or an admonishment, a call to action, and many times that admonishment includes a threat of judgment. And then finally, after the admonishment, we have a promise. A promise of what the church will gain if they repent and if they persevere in faith. Smyrna, you may have noticed, is a little different. It is the first of two churches in which Jesus finds nothing to condemn. Now, does this mean Smyrna was a perfect church? No, of course not. There's no such thing as a perfect church. I know some of us find that hard to believe. What are we doing here? All churches are full of people who sin. And so the bride of Christ on earth today is indeed a flawed bride, made righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but we are still deeply flawed as the bride of Christ. And Smyrna was flawed too. The saints who worshiped there were sinners. They did not love the Lord their God with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. They did not love their neighbor as they loved themselves, not perfectly. But what this does mean, the fact that Jesus does not condemn them for anything, what it does mean is that this church has not given ground over to sin. No sin was able to take root in their midst. 
They guarded their hearts. They guarded their doctrine. They guarded their loves. When they sinned, they repented to God. They repented to one another. They forgave one another. They were active in pursuing the peace and the purity of the church together. And they continued to look in faith to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of that, Jesus, as he writes to this little church, he only commends and does not condemn. So, apart from how short this letter is, it is the lack of a condemnation which sets apart this church from the majority of the seven churches we're going to be studying. As we begin to look at this letter to the church in Smyrna, let's first look at the self-designation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to the church that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. That is how he introduces himself to this church. Now, this is not the first time in Revelation that Jesus has described himself in this way. Just two weeks ago, as we looked at Revelation chapter 1, we heard Jesus in verse 18 of chapter 1 declare that he is indeed the first and the last. What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the first and the last? He is saying that he is indeed the sovereign God. All things begin and all things end with Christ. There is no one or anything outside of his sovereign reign and rule and control. Likewise, Jesus says in his self-designation here, verse 8, that he is the one who died and came to life. Again, he says something very similar back in chapter 1. And here he is, of course, declaring the true historical event of his death upon the cross and his resurrection. And in doing so, he's saying to the church in Smyrna that he himself has passed through death, has conquered death, and is now alive forevermore. This is the self-designation of Jesus Christ to this little church. And understand, this self-designation would have been a great encouragement to the saints in Smyrna because of what Jesus then goes on to commend them for. He commends the church, beloved, for suffering well. This is a suffering church. Verse 9, Jesus says, as the first and the last, as the one who conquered death, he says to them, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Beloved, we should seriously consider this commendation. We should not take it lightly. Because sometimes I think we in the modern church have this idea, an idea that is completely foreign to the Word of God, that if we are obedient, if we are faithful, if we do enough good works, then we will not suffer. That, brothers and sisters and friends, is a lie from the pits of hell. That is a false gospel. It is not taught by Scripture. In fact, the very testimony of Scripture contradicts that idea, both in the Old and New Testament. The suffering of the people of God is not an indication of the faithfulness of the people of God. A church that suffers is not indicating an unfaithful church. 
And churches who do not suffer, you cannot and should not assume that they are a faithful church. So just banish those thoughts from your minds, beloved. Suffering does not mean that you are unfaithful. Smyrna is a faithful church. A church in which Jesus finds nothing to condemn, and yet they were a church which suffered deeply. And what were they suffering through in particular? Not illness, not death from illness or accidents or natural disasters or any of those things. Those are sufferings that are common to both the Christian and the non-Christian. What they were suffering was unique. And I would say unique to a faithful church. They were suffering tribulation. Tribulation which came to them in the forms of poverty and slander. Now the word tribulation literally means living under the pressure of great oppression. This was the experience of the Christians in Smyrna. They were living under the pressure of great oppression. And that oppression, as I said, takes on two forms. First, the form of poverty. Now you might say there are poor people, whether they are Christians or not. What makes this poverty unique? Well, here it would help if we knew a little something about the city of Smyrna. It was a city which was considered the shining jewel in the Roman Empire. It was originally a Greek colony that was destroyed around 600 B.C., and a few hundred years later, it was said that the church had a resurrection as it was rebuilt according to the design and plans of Alexander the Great. And in that city, it possessed the great temple of the Greek god Zeus. This is a city which was extremely loyal to Rome. Cicero called the city one of our most faithful and most ancient allies. And above all else, it was a city committed to what was known as the imperial cult. The cult of the emperor. The official religion, if you will, of the Roman Empire. Caesar worship. Caesar is Lord was the creed of the Roman Empire. In other words, Caesar, the emperor, is our God. Smyrna was one of the most dedicated pious, you might use the word pious, cities in this imperial cult. And this fact, beloved, this truth about the culture of Smyrna is the root cause of the church's poverty. Because, beloved, you must understand, in that city, if you were to have any sort of economic success, any success at all in the society and culture of Smyrna, you would have to, on some level, participate in the imperial cult. And so why is it that the Christians in Smyrna were materially poor? It is because they refused, on every level, to participate in the false religion of emperor worship. They would never utter the creed, Caesar is Lord. Instead, they fully committed themselves to the earliest of Christian creeds, the earliest of Christian confessions. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is why they were poor. And is it any wonder why Jesus would commend them for this poverty? Understand what the word poverty 
means here. It's, it's a Greek word that we translate into poverty, but it has a very specific meaning. It means these Christians were so poor that they could not even meet their most basic needs. They had very little clothing, went days, maybe weeks, without a full meal. That's the tribulation, the suffering that they went through for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says of Jesus that for your sake, he, Jesus, became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's a desperate poverty that the Christians in Smyrna were willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I think Pastor Rick Phillips uh, hits the nail on the head when he said this. How few Christians today are willing to place the affairs of Christ's kingdom ahead of their own careers or financial prosperity. But the Christians of Smyrna realized that theirs was the privilege of sharing in Christ's own poverty. Because of the fact that these Christians were willing to share in Christ's suffering and in Christ's poverty, beloved, Jesus tells them that while he knows of their poverty, they should not forget they are indeed rich. I know you're poor, but you are rich, Jesus says. Rich, no doubt, because their willingness to share in the poverty of Jesus Christ meant that they also would share in the eternal wealth and treasures and inheritance of Jesus Christ. So this is the first form that their tribulation that they were suffering comes to them in the form of poverty. Poverty for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Smyrna, again, is commended for it. Then Jesus says that their tribulation comes to them in the form of the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Why does Jesus refer to these Jews as not really Jews, but rather belonging to the devil? That's really what he's saying. There are two reasons. First, and primarily, it is because these are Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They were not true Israelites in that sense. You see, this is the consistent theology of the New Testament. A being an ethnic offspring of Abraham, eternally speaking, means nothing. It earns you no merit with God. If you reject Christ, then you reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is those who belong to Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, who are the offspring of Abraham and heirs according to promise. And so the unbelieving Jews, they are false Jews in that respect. They are false because they reject the Messiah of Israel. They do not belong to the kingdom of God, but instead belong to the synagogue of Satan. But secondly, Jesus says these Jews belong to the synagogue of Satan, not just because of their rejection of the Messiah, but because of how they treat the people of God. It, it is clear that these Jews are the instrument through which Satan is bringing tribulation upon the Christian church. Now, the city of Smyrna had a fairly robust Jewish population. 
And in the Roman Empire, Jews had a special exception granted to them as it concerned involvement in the imperial cult. They were unlike any other religious group in the Roman Empire at that time. Jews were not forced to participate in emperor worship. Instead, they were allowed to, by the empire, to offer sacrifices to Yahweh on behalf of the emperor. This exception went the whole way back to Julius Caesar himself. The Jews were very jealous of this privilege. They loved that they did not share it with any other religion. They desired not to share this privilege with anyone else. And so in the eyes of Rome, when Rome looked at the Christians, and Rome understood Christianity as a sect of Judaism, this angered the Jews. The Jews did not like that the Christians were considered by the empire a sect of Judaism and granted Christians, at least at first, the same exception to participation in the Roman cult. And so what did the Jews do? The Jews would slander the Christians to the Roman Empire. They would go to the Roman authorities and say things like, the Christians drown their infants, referring to the practice of baptizing their children. They would go to the empire and say, the Christians, when they gather and eat a meal, they drink blood and eat flesh. Referring, of course, to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And these slanders by the Jews against the Christian church were successful. Rome did indeed persecute the Christians upon the words of these slanderous Jews. In fact, one early church martyr, the church father Polycarp, who was bishop in Smyrna. He was actually appointed by the Apostle John himself to be the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He was maybe even the man who read this letter to that church. Sixty years after this letter was written, Polycarp was burned at the stake by the Roman Empire. And we know Rome burned him at the stake because of slanderous remarks made by the Jews to the Roman authorities. And so this too, the slander of those who call themselves Jews but are really the synagogue of Satan, this is part of the tribulation that the Christians in Smyrna were experiencing. And this too is what Jesus commends the church for. Because they stood firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they were willing to sacrifice material possessions and even their lives for their Lord, Jesus was pleased with them. Beloved, as I read this and I study this, I do have to ask the question, I do wonder, are we willing? Is our church willing? Are we willing to suffer tribulation because of our commitment to Jesus Christ? Do we really want to serve Jesus that much? Are we really willing to sacrifice all for the sake of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you and me, this church, every Christian church, is being called to this tribulation for the name of Jesus? Maybe not to the same degree. Maybe not of the same type that the brothers and sisters in Smyrna were were experiencing, but we are called to tribulation. 
And maybe you look around and you think, well, if that is true, if that's what the church is called to do, then why hasn't the church, especially in our own country, why haven't we experienced more of this kind of tribulation? And the simple answer is, beloved, the church does not experience in our country this type of tribulation because we've become too much like the world. It is not because the world is friendly to Christianity. It is because we have become like the world. The author, the commentator, the pastor, James Ramsey, Ramsey, once wrote, back in the 1880s, he wrote this. He said, the offense of the cross has not ceased. In other words, the gospel, what was offensive to the world in the first century, that has not changed, and it is still just as offensive to the world today. The offense of the cross has not ceased. The world has not become Christian. Well, that's something we can fool ourselves with, right? This is a Christian nation. The world hasn't become Christian. Again, he wrote this in the 1880s, long before any sort of, you know, societal change that we look at today and think, oh, society is turning against Christ. He said, the world has not become Christian. It is still the world, though perhaps it is more polished and learned instead of savage and barbarous. But the world, but he said, the church has become more worldly, and to a fearful extent. Set has become worldly to the point where she often seeks to justify her worldliness. James Ramsey said, whenever the church completely renounces the world and utters a clear, consistent, and faithful testimony in her life, as well as in her doctrines, offers a testimony against sin in all its polished, and well-disguised forms, there will be an inherent enmity of the world that will become fully manifest against the church. It may be different in a different way from what the church in Smyrna experienced. It generally at least must be more indirect today. But if the world does not persecute the church, listen to this, James Ramsey says, if the world does not persecute the church, it is either because the world has corrupted the church so far that her testimony does not seriously interfere with the world's more quote-unquote refined indulgences or because the world regards the church as too powerless to be worthy of its notice. And sometimes I wonder which is true of us. Has the world corrupted our church to the point where we are no longer a threat against their refined indulgences, or have we become too powerless to be worthy of the world's notice? Beloved, understand this. When our church truly becomes salt and light, when we renounce the world, and when I talk about renouncing the world, I'm not talking about renouncing people. Understand this. This is not about not loving the unbeliever. This is not about turning our backs and not evangelizing to the world. Renouncing the world means we renounce the philosophies, the political systems, the false religions that our world has normalized. That says these things are true and virtuous, and that old dusty Christianity that you cling to, that is what's wicked and evil. We are to renounce the systems, the philosophies, the false religions of the world. That's what it means to renounce the world. When we renounce the world, when we utter a clear, consistent, faithful testimony in our lives, both as a church and as individuals, 
It can't just be our church together on a Sunday morning. Individually, how you live your life throughout the week. When we usher a faithful testimony in our lives and in our doctrines, we will experience tribulation. We will experience extreme pressure and oppression from the world. And So again, I ask this church, are we willing to do that? Do we really love Jesus enough? Do we really desire to please Jesus enough to suffer tribulation? Smyrna was willing. Smyrna was willing to go without food, clothing, and shelter to the glory of Christ. Smyrna was willing to suffer slander by the world, be exiled, be put to death for the glory of Jesus Christ. And because of it, out of all the seven churches, James Ramsey said, no one stood higher in the estimation of her Lord than that little church. This is what the church in Smyrna is commended for. And as we said before, there is no condemnation that follows this commendation. And so we might ask then, if there is no condemnation, is there still an admonishment given? And the answer is yes. We have to understand that word admonishment doesn't just mean to offer a correction or to call to repentance or rebuke. The word admonishment also means to urge earnestly. And that's what Jesus does in verse 10. He urges the church earnestly. Jesus knows, because he is the sovereign God, the first and the last, that the church in Smyrna is about to go through an even more severe tribulation. He says that the devil, and notice that by the way, this is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus in these visions to John is consistently throughout Revelation showing that it is the devil, the ancient serpent, who is behind the oppression of God's people. He says the devil, working through the slanderous Jews and Roman oppressors, is about to throw some of them into prison, that they may be tested. And for 10 days, they will have tribulation. And so Jesus earnestly pleads with them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Knowing what is coming, beloved, Jesus wants to urge the saints not to fear and to persevere unto death. Now in urging them, Jesus says a few things in verse 10 which would give them hope, peace, comfort, and assurance. First, he says that when the devil throws some of them in jail, and understand, this imprisonment would lead to their deaths. Jail, many times in those days, prison was nothing more than a holding cell until you could be executed. Jesus says when the devil would throw some of them in jail, it is so that they may be tested. What does that mean? How is that an encouragement to a suffering church? What Jesus is telling them, the devil is doing this work against you, but I am using it according to my sovereign plan for your own good. This testing, you see, is part of the Lord's sanctifying work. Through the tribulation, their faith would be tested in the same way that a jeweler would test gold so as to refine it and burn off its impurities. That's what this increased suffering, which the devil was about to bring upon them, would ultimately do. 
The devil, no doubt, intended this suffering to bring an end to the church in Smyrna. He failed, by the way. There is still a church there today. I don't know how faithful they are today, but that church is still there. The devil intended this suffering to bring an end to this church. Jesus Christ, however, worked it for the sanctification of his church. And so the church is told, fear not, there's a higher purpose at work in all of this. Your tribulation is not a sign of the devil's sovereignty. Me working it for your good is a sign of my sovereignty. Be encouraged. I am sovereign even over this coming trial. And Jesus says this trial, it would be for ten days. Now that's not a literal number. He's not saying to them, take out your calendars and you can cross off each day. When you get to day nine, you know you're almost through it. He's saying rather, listen, there's a limit that I myself have appointed. There is a limit to this coming tribulation. Ten days is a symbolic number, meaning it's a short time. And why can Jesus say this tribulation is short? Because, as he said in verse 8, he is the first and the last, the sovereign God. All things have their beginning and end in him. So this little church could truly fear not at the coming trial because the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, he is the one who was with them. He is the one who was limiting the time of their tribulation. He is the one who was sovereign over their tribulation and trials and sufferings. This 10 days would have also brought to the minds of these saints Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel 1, the prophet Daniel and his three friends, who we know today as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, when they were taken to the court of Nebuchadnezzar in the, in the Babylonian exile of Jerusalem, they were given food to eat by Nebuchadnezzar. And this food, according to Jewish dietary laws, was considered unclean. Daniel and his three friends refused to eat of that unclean food for ten days. You may recall he asked uh, Nebuchadnezzar to be allowed to eat food which was considered clean by Jewish law. And at the end of those ten days where Daniel and his three friends did not eat any unclean food, but rather only ate fruits and vegetables and food that was considered clean by the Jewish law, at the end of those ten days, Daniel 1 says, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. These saints, when they heard this ten-day period, I have no doubt would have been reminded of the testing of Daniel and his three day and his three friends for ten days. And so the Christians in Smyrna could remember that Old Testament account. And they could have assurance that at the end of this testing for ten days, they would indeed be better off than they were before the period of tribulation. And so Jesus tells them, fear not. Take heart. Persevere by faith. Because as Michael Wilcock remarked, there would be in the goodness of God come an eleventh day and all would be over. That's the first encouragement, or the, the first two encouragements Jesus gives to this church. The last encouragement that Jesus offers in his admonishment comes at the end of verse 10 when he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, peace 
comfort, hope for the church in Smyrna. If, and it's not really an if, it is a when, they persevere, they would receive from Jesus Christ a crown. Now here is definitely a play on words. Because in the city of Smyrna there was a hill. A hill that was very famous. And on that hill, it had many grand estates, mansions, and vineyards. The hill was known as the crown of Smyrna. It was a symbol of that city's great wealth and prosperity. And beloved, that is exactly the crown in which these Christians willingly gave up for the sake of Jesus Christ. They gave up participating in the crown of wealth and prosperity in the city of Smyrna. And Jesus says, fear not, be faithful unto death, because you're going to get an even better crown. The crown of everlasting life. But Jesus tells them, I'm going to give you the crown of life. What is He saying? He is saying the crown you will receive is a crown of eternal riches. It is the crown which indicates your participation in my victory and my heavenly rule and my eternal inheritance. That's the encouragement Christ offers this church. I will be with you. I have limited the time of your tribulation. I am sovereign over your tribulation. I am using it for your own good, for your own glory, for your own sanctification, for your own glorification rather, not their own glory, but their glorification. You will be better on the 11th day than you were on the first day because of it. And beloved, if you persevere, you will be participants in my eternal reign and rule and eternal inheritance. Great encouragement for a church suffering Tribulation. And it brings us then to the promise that Jesus gives the church. The promise is that for the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is a phrase some of you probably find confusing. What is the second death? It's actually a phrase that appears later on in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And there it clearly refers to eternal condemnation. So the book of Hebrews says... It is appointed once for man, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The second death is the result of those who die, stand before the judgment throne of God, and are declared guilty in His sight because they refuse to repent and receive Jesus by faith alone. Jesus promises the church, listen, you're going to be imprisoned. The devil may actually kill your body. You will experience the first death, but there is a death you will never taste. There is a death you will never pass through. And he declares that, beloved. He promises that, beloved, to the church because he himself passed through that second death on the cross when he willingly sacrificed himself as an atonement for all the sins of all his people. When Jesus took on the full wrath of God, He was experiencing very much so the second death, the eternal condemnation and wrath of God towards sin and towards sinners. And He experienced the second death so that for everyone who would come to Him by faith, they would never experience that eternal wrath and judgment. This is the promise, not just for the church in Smyrna, but for our church today. This is the promise for all who suffer trials and tribulations for the sake 
of Jesus Christ, beloved. We may be poor, but we are truly rich. We may be willing, we, we may have to give up earthly crowns and riches for the sake of our Lord, but He will give us a better crown. We may even lose our lives and die, but there is another death we will never experience. We will not be hurt by the second death because our Lord, our Savior, is the one who is the first and the last. But more than that, He is the one who died and came to life and is alive forevermore. He is sovereign even over death. And He is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades 